Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today, we're talking about... Memory and truth. So these are some pretty big topics, and we have a little story before we get started, which is relying on memory and hopefully true memories about how Dan and I picked these. We we actually had something kind of cool this this uh, last uh, what weekend? Yeah, it was Saturday. Um, we got to meet up face to face for the first time in over a year. year. Yeah, wow. four, fourteen months, I think, wow. maybe. Uh, since the last time we were in the same place at the same time. But, you know, yeah. now uh, COVID, we've got a lot of uh, restrictions lifted, you know, and we're both inoculated. And so we could hang out on Milwaukee's Riverwalk. And uh, we got to talking about what should we do for our next show topic. And Dan had this idea. So why don't, why don't you kind of take it away about the origin of that and i'll correct you if you get any if you remember anything wrong (laughs) (laughs) um so like memory is always kind of this fickle thing that we uh encode it uh once especially during uh, every night we sleep and our our brain kind of decides what's actually useful to keep long term and what's not and kind of throws it away um and i'd actually gone through an entire um course in college that was kind of about um memory and so i already had all these notes kind of like rattling out in the back of my head and i also have a physical notebook of them um so you know once again there's interesting what do i remember yeah, yeah. and then going back to my <laughs> notebook and like oh i kind of remember that differently um but uh it was this you know especially in consideration of truth like what what do we remember to be truth what is truth and how are we certain of this truth especially when we are oftentimes relying on this very uh lossy and falsifiable uh faculty but we feel so incredibly convinced whenever we say something that it is actually true yeah and conviction is oftentimes if you have too much of it that might actually be a sign that what you're working with is less straight out memory of the facts or the truth and much more uh, something something built up something that has been fed to you or the world gave to you and you interpreted it in a certain way or you know uh, it, it, when you're really invested in it you always have to ask the question why am i so emotionally connected with this. And that's not to say that we, we should, you know, suddenly become skeptics and now we don't remember anything. Right? <laughs> we don't want to put that onto anybody through this. But there are a lot of things that we we can bring philosophy to bear and, and psychology and some other fields to to uh, try to make sense of. Maybe even literature, too. I mean, think about Proust and his uh, memory books. They're you know, his, his ideal was to, I don't know, basically write all, all the things that, that he recalled from the past. I only made it through the first one before I abandoned the project of reading them. I don't know. Did you ever read those? I, I did not, but you know, I, I do have my own, you know, journals, which, uh, you know, probably not nearly as in detail as Proust, but uh, very yeah. interesting to go back and read. Are they journals in the sense of diaries where you you like said what happened that day or are they are they more like resolutions or things Um they're mostly um like when something has come to a 
point where I feel like I need to either write to myself to it in order to just kind of get it out of my head and, and think about okay. it in a different way. Um, but definitely, um, almost never did I have a, a daily journal, um, except for uh, when I was doing some like uh, stoic end of day type thing. But th- that still wasn't like that much of a total recall of the day. It was like, okay, what was good or bad? How What actions were good or bad in that day? Well, this is actually a good point to jump in, right? Memory is so often not like just a complete blanket remembering everything that happened. It's usually focused on on something, some sort of uh, highlight. Yeah, it's not, not I, I wanted to say practical, but it's not always something practical. I mean, we can try to remember, you know, what happened in this movie that we saw as a kid, or we can get into all sorts of digressions. But we can, we can also have things like try to remember where the hell did I put my car keys? You know, and you try, you read, you retrace your steps in your head, right? Um, or, or my um, coffee cup. You try to, yeah, coffee cup could be bad that way too. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could probably have also we could talk about lost objects in in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, require us to to engage in in memory to to make it active, mm-hmm. and then other people try to help us out, and they're not usually helping us out very much. They're they're actually you know suggesting things, and we're like, yeah, I already checked there. I already thought about that, <laughs> you know, and they impede our ability to to get there. And we ha- we all have that experience of having some phrase on the tip of our tongue we're trying mm-hmm. to remember it and then we we can't in the situation that we want to be in and then we we remember it later on right mm-hmm. right uh and so i guess we should really talk about like what are some ideas or at least early ideas of yeah what memory is and and kind of uh the debate therein versus of um uh kind of nature or nurture or natism or um i it's on the tip of my tongue the oh, empiricism of, right uh, and, yes. and having a tabula rasa <laughs> yes yeah. so thank you for helping me out there greg uh <laughs> <laughs> to remember it yeah. so um the tabula rasa is a, a blank slate or an erased slate uh, first uh appearing in aristotle's de anima i believe that's on the soul correct um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he's trying to talk about, well, what is what is memory? How, how does it work and how is it connected with these other faculties like imagination and sensation and all those sorts of things? And so you put sort of this idea of uh, a blank state, a kind of a, a pure empiricist idea that everything that's coming to us is from our sense data, you know, what we can see and feel and touch and smell. And this is then imprinted upon this slate or i guess um in his understanding of like a a waxed tablet not quite a slate yeah that was a very common idea in in ancient times that wax tablet actually that got used into medieval times you would often write a composition on it's almost like an etch-a-sketch right Mm -hmm. or uh, nowadays we have those uh apps that allow us to like draw on our phones or tablets it's like that you would do your preliminary work on the wax tablet because it was you know you could erase it Mm -hmm. you could you could always do it over and then once it was in the shape that you wanted then you would turn it to like whatever ink was going to go on to parchment paper papyrus pick whatever whatever it happens to be and then you would you would write that out so it was it was like a like a stopgap right it was your your rough draft 
Um, exactly. Your scratch paper, we used scratch, to call it, right? Literal scratch paper. Um, and, yeah. and you'd erase it by heating it up so the wax would melt back into a flat uh, yeah. sheet, and then you could go right back at it. Um, and, uh, oh, I remember well, you from... Know, well, yes. Well, Zeno the Stoic talked about he used that metaphor too of uh wax and he would talk about the impressions or or appearances the fantasiae as sort of like a a seal onto the wax in in our minds Mm -hmm. and then you know they would they would stay there until we until we got rid of them Mm -hmm. or uh, another analogy is like writing in the sand and Mm. unless we uh intend to uh, transfer that into long-term memory. The, the, uh, the, the ocean will come up to the beach and, and wash it away. And so you, you know, so this is kind of like an analogy for like maybe working memory or the memory of your day before it turns into long-term okay. memory. Um, yeah. But this is kind of indirect uh, contrast with like you know, a lot of uh, Plato's like uh, ideas of the form of we already know all these things that and we're just coming to recognize them within ourselves. Well, that's an interesting one because. Plato thinks that we only very dimly remember them, mm-hmm. and we need um, we need things to jog our memory. So yeah. so we need dialectic, you know, the back and forth um, discussion of things. We need we need to see examples, and it takes a long time before we can get our we, we can bring that out of memory. And this is something too. I always talk with my students. I say when we're like reading the Mino or the Republic where he talks about the, the forms and I say, do you think he means this for, you know, it's clear that he, he thinks it w- applies to mathematics and geometric proofs and things like justice and courage and, you know, what we could call metaphysics and, and morals. But do you think he means this about like how to make a ham sandwich or how to tie your shoes? You know, there have got to be a lot of things that there's no forms for those. We learn those. Like think about tying our shoes, right? But, but, but why isn't there a perfect form of a ham sandwich? It's it's not the sort of thing that you could have a perfect form of in Plato's ontology. Now there there might be other people who come up with a similar kind of theory because they they often talk about you know the Platonic form of this, the Platonic form of that, but the Platonic form is um, it's very um, well, it's an essence, but it's also featureless. Like if you think about the platonic form of human being, and this this often blows my students' minds. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say, so imagine a human being, and it doesn't have any particular color of its skin or its eyes, and it does have two eyes because that that's part of our essence, um, and it's rational, but it's neither male nor female uh, or anything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that part. And then the forms, this is one of Aristotle's criticisms of it. They don't do a hell of a lot. You know, the the platonic form of of human being never actually does any human activities. Right. It doesn't pick its nose. It doesn't scratch itself. It doesn't stuff its face with ham sandwiches. (laughs) It's just out there in, in, in form land doing whatever forms do you know Uh, same thing with the form of justice the form of justice this is one reason i'm not a platonist (laughs) Uh, the form of justice itself it's like perfect justice but it doesn't do anything so i I think aristotle's right to say okay well this doesn't this doesn't really help us much so lovely digression Uh, (laughs) 
uh, coming back to like this is a whole innateism versus empiricism kind of had continue on you know throughout yeah. the centuries um, to like our nature versus nurture debates of like how do we grow as individuals how do we learn how do we gather information and and you know at least what we've seen for the last you know I guess a couple hundred years now is that it's it's really both there are yeah both exactly innate structures within ourselves and there are and a lot of it is um uh nature and uh and i guess i've i've um my it my current like a... oh go ahead my, my my current favorite theory is that we have kind of like a or at least a, a analogy of it is that we're kind of like we're a chapter book and we've got like a really really rough outline okay of of the chapters and depending upon our uh nature are the, the things that we've experienced some chapters get filled in more than others okay yeah yeah that makes that that's a that's a good analogy i think um i also kind of think that there's there's quite a few things that are that are rooted in our nature and they're kind of rough sort of like what you're talking about as a chapter book where you get the outlines and then you got to kind of fill things in but i think there's a lot that if you don't have the right kind of experiences they're not going to get actuated they're not going to get put into play, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe there's maybe there's some of these that we we still don't um, know about, or we've only dimly dimly glimpsed at this point in time. Maybe maybe there's more development for humanity. Um, I hope so. In the future. <laughs> yeah, that. I mean. That's that's a good point. There's a lot of thing. There's a lot of ways in which we could be doing much better, right? Mm-hmm. Let us not uh, devolve into um, lamentations. Yeah, or just pure (laughs) pessimism. There's lots to look forward to. We have lots of problems, but I have confidence that hopefully we as a species can move forward. Yeah. So one of the things that you wanted to talk about is how memory actually works, though, right? Yeah. How, How it proceeds. So whenever we actually recall a memory, the the process you know thank you neuroscience at least for the small amounts that we've been able to glean from the human mind even though it's we are still you know a small boat at a vast sea here um but uh the pathways write each other every time that we recall a memory and so this is how you kind of get big fish stories because every time oh. your 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 uncle says, "Oh yeah, I bought it. I got a fish this big," and the next time it's like, "I got a fish this big," and I got a fish, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you've got like a fish that's like you know the size of the Titanic, and and he might think he might be embellishing a little bit every time, yeah. But every time that he embellishes it, he is actually helping to rewrite his memory of what the actual fish was. And then and especially if you keep on doing this over and over, um the uh, amount that it, it moves from the ground truth um, can become these very large uh, discontinuities. Yeah, you could talk about there's the narrative fish and then there's the fish that actually did get caught, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the narrative fish is what is changing, but you're saying that as it's changing, it's still anchored to that original fish that got caught unless your uncle just made it up altogether you know mm. uh which which sometimes does happen too people <laughs> can have memories of things that never took place 
Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of quotes are like this, you know, you people, not just with like famous people in the past where there's all sorts of fake quotes circulating around on the internet. Um, but even with lines in movies that we think were said in that movie that, that something close to it might've gotten said, Mm. but nobody ever said that. And somehow we all have this collective memory that, you know, Luke Skywalker said this or, uh, who, who else should we pick out? Like Indiana Jones, maybe, I I don't know which, which quotes would be, um, what is it? Um, the spice must flow from Dune does not appear in the film. Oh, interesting. But it is in the book, right? <sighs> it, or isn't it? I don't think it's in either, but it became this like collective uh, what is that? hallucination and it became yeah. so ingrained into the society that it is a thing or I guess what's the the line on uh no it's or uh what's uh Luke I am your father. Right. Um, is not <laughs> yeah. actually the line. Um, yeah. Isn't it amazing that that can happen? You know? Yeah. Or beam me up, Scotty. That's another one, right? Uh, Kirk right. doesn't say that apparently in in, in Star Trek stuff. Or um, what's although the... he must have said it at a lot of conventions, I bet. <laughs> but what's the um, the the children's book about the family of bears? Goldilocks, you mean, or uh, are you no, talking about the Bernstein Bears? Yeah. The, the you you mean the was it the Bernstein Bears? Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't know. I haven't looked at it for so long. And my kids weren't, my kids weren't into them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, now that I – actually, that's a lot of hazy memory area. <laughs> like I remember them being into the Hungry Hungry Caterpillar, mm. you know, and I remember Goodnight Moon. Um, I don't remember an awful lot else mm. <laughs> from what I read to my kids. I remember trying to get them into Alice in Wonderland and then they, they, them not being interested in that either. Speaking of Goodnight Moon, there's a, a great parody called, I believe it's uh, Goodnight Madib. Oh, well, really? It's, it's Goodnight uh, Sandworm, Goodnight Benny Gesserit, Goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so... Um, so there's actually some really interesting studies um, of, of people like we were talking about journaling and how things that m- be mm. misremembered and how we can be so confident in our memories that we will even disavow our previous experiences. And so um, they had a, a group of um, test subjects um, uh, have an event and they all wrote it down and they came back to them a couple of months later and said, how, what do you remember of this event? Yeah. Um, and so there's there's uh, they've done this many times. There is a uh, a subset of these subjects that reject um, their own. Oh, sorry. Well, they they first they misremember the events, and then there's okay. a subset of that group who will then reject their own writing about the events, even when it's written in their own handwriting. Like, they are so. Uh, and they Stuck. think it's like a fake or yeah they they think like someone is playing a trick on them because wow. they they believe their memory to be so infallible that's interesting so we we tend to think that we are right all the time because the feeling of being confidently correct and confidently correct but incorrect feel the exact yeah. same way it's sort of like that, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Except right. that in this case, it's not your lying eyes. It's your lying memories about stuff, uh, which which are lies. <laughs> so um, you, you were telling me that you remember this next portion of the, the satanic panic of the 80s. Uh, what was your experience of this? 
Well, I, I didn't fortunately get involved with any of the like accusations about, you know, this lurid child abuse stuff that was going on. But I, I will say that that um, what do they call that that uh, technique? It was like recovering memories that was going on that that applied to these these crazy stories about like, you know, which oh, oh, is uh, recovering repressed memories. Right. Yeah. Now that, that didn't just apply to that. That got used uh, in the eighties and the nineties in all sorts of other venues. And um, many people remembered child abuse that may or may not have happened. And quite a few people, you know, got brought up on charges and someone to, uh, to prison on the basis of testimony that was, you know, was it really a witness testimony or, or victim testimony? In some cases, it probably was. And then in some cases, it probably wasn't. And there's this vast um, domain in between where we, we really can't be sure, you know. But the satanic panic was like a particular thing. And I my my connection to it was, you know, I was a metalhead and, and I still am. I was going to say in the 80s. But um, being a metalhead back then is quite a, quite different than being into that now, where you know you go to a concert and it's like a lot of forty and fifty year olds with some some younger people in the band might be in their their sixties or something like that, um, if they're a classic metal band and everybody's just having a good time. Um, in the eighties, it was you know a, a music of rebellion and there was kind of a dress code, denim and leather. Uh, the old Saxon song was a good depiction of it, and um, you know the crowd that I ran with. Um, quite a few of them were, in fact, criminals. They actually had a, uh, a joking name for it, Midnight Sales and Services, and they'd steal stuff and fence it. And I went along as, as sort of a heavy because I was kind of big and, and, and a bit scary looking at the time, um, although I was, you know, really hoping I wouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there was like a, there were some legitimate reasons to be worried about what was going on with, with heavy metal and also punk, you know, um, and then there were, there was a lot of sort of, um, well, you're the outsiders, you know, we're going to say that you're deviants and, and things like that. And, um, you know, if you could, if you could accuse somebody back then of Satanism, um, you could actually get a lot of mileage out of it nationwide. You know, nowadays you can do that if you're kind of in the backwoods and people buy into that sort of stuff. It's not a, it's not a mainstream idea in, 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 in the 2020s. But in the 1980s, it was this, this view that, oh, maybe there are people out there who are, you know, into sex, drugs, rock and roll, and also abusing children and killing people and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you had this, you know, kind of, let's call it a thick narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And you could, you could basically make this stuff up and then get people to think that they, they saw something or remembered something. And, it, it did lead to, you know, some arrests and convictions. And um, you were going to talk about a particularly bad case where somebody actually thought he had done mm -hmm. horrible things. So, yeah, like this entire milieu, as well with the, you know, talking about how memories rewrite themselves in our heads, we can yeah. also implant memories. So this is like 
the idea of like false memories being implanted from this process of recovering recovering repressed memories and so this is a, a, a usually been used through a process of suggestion they say like the the person that is walking the individual through this is like okay try to place yourself at this place in your time in your childhood or something and 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 think as vividly as possible about this this moment and this actually can thus stimulate creating memories, which then you believe strongly to be actually true. It, it's sort of like the use of traditional mindfulness practices, you know, putting yourself into a, a calm, suggestible state and then engaging in visualization. Except in this case, it's somebody else guiding the visualization and it's not, you know, like, let's get some stuff off your shoulders. It's more like, let's, let, let's remember the horrible things that happened to you. Yeah, I feel like I'm not quite sure. I feel like this might be kind of like an outshoot, a little bit of like Freud and like you know, childhood trauma things, and trying to get that out, and um, and then bring in the whole milieu of the satanic panic at the moment, and they're like, oh, well, that's you know, that's interesting because um, the Freudian paradigm was pretty much you know from like say the. 30s onward into you know late late 80s late 90s the dominant paradigm um and it, and it, it you know like a lot of dominant paradigms it spun off in in many different directions so yeah there the, the notion that um what's wrong with us is primarily our own you know, repression, reaction to working through things that happened to us in our childhood, different, different, let's call them not necessarily Freudians, but people working in the shadow of Freud, mm -hmm. you know, um, came up with different ways in which this would, would, uh, would happen. Um, so that's, yeah, that's one important element of it. And then you've also got the, well, if you're, if it's not coming to mind, that's because you're repressing it. Mm -hmm. Right. So this unfalsifiable, approach that says you know we've got the answer and if you question the answer you're part of the problem right that's yeah i mean good you're, you're, you're a satanist that's just trying to repress the the knowledge that satanists are out there potentially or you were a victim of of satanists and you don't want to think that anything's quite so scary so you want to think it was just people being mean to you or stuff like that when they're really going to kill you or rape yeah. you or do do whatever they're they're going to do yeah yeah um or you know if it's with your parents um how could you think that your parents would do such horrible things to you um you know obviously you don't need parents to be satanic to do abuse there's lots and lots of cases of way more cases of abuse than we ought to have but i think a lot of people got brought to the point where they you know here's another thing about memory memory works with human activities human activities are always ambiguous does somebody love you or hate you um you might think that they love you, but maybe secretly they actually hate you and they're just saying things to get by. Or maybe they don't actually hate you and they really secretly love you and they're just being hard on you. It's always possible to interpret uh, human activities, attitudes, statements in multiple ways. And so when you've got somebody kind of unscrupulous or perhaps deluded guiding you in how that's uh, how, how you should interpret it, you can get led into all sorts of... Uh, crazy paths right right so um be mindful of the people that you spend time with i guess to a certain extent uh 
so this yeah well how, or, or professionals who you you get involved with who are going to help you unscrew up your life right mm-hmm. I'm, I and mean, there's a lot of we should actually probably do a show about um, bad self-help yeah. <laughs> uh i i hope i put my now i'll move from that okay um so there's a uh, a case a specific case about this um for false memories um which, which is called the thurston county ritual abuse case as a 1988 case in which Paul Ingram became convinced that he had committed sexual crimes against his own children, or rather, you know, reprehensible, absolutely reprehensible yeah. crimes. Um, and he was totally convinced of it to the point where he was, like, confessing. Um, but uh, there's a, a psychologist by the name of uh, Richard Offshe, who is a member of the advisory board of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation Advocacy Organization, which is rather a big mouthful. Yeah. But um, he had... Um, became aware of this case and he uh, had went down to try to kind of unsnarl this thing because he'd seen the the damage that was happening from either you know unscrupulous or just well mining but uh, thinking the wrong things about how to do proper psychology mm-hmm. and was able to run a couple experiments with uh, Richard or sorry with um, Paul and so. Uh, Richard Oshie uh, claimed that Ingram's false memories were implanted with suggestion. Oshie tested the hypothesis by telling Ingram that a son and daughter had accused him of forcing them to commit incest with each other. The interrogating officers had previously accused Ingram of this, but he denied it, and he also denied Oshie's accusation. In response, Oshie instructed Ingram to play sorry, prey on the idea, and later Ingram produced a full, detailed written confession, questioning the daughter who had supposed to have been involved on, despite many of these accusations against her father, she denied that she, such an incident had ever occurred. Upon being told that no such accusation had been made by either his son or daughter, Ingram refused to believe the incident wasn't real, maintaining, and I quote, it's just as real to me as anything else. Ashi was thus convinced that Ingram's confessions were solely the result of extensive interrogation sessions and questions being applied in an unusually suggestible individual. Yeah, well, there, there's a sort of like hallmark case, right, or a paradigm of how, how bad things can go. I think this does happen a lot, you know, within families within institutions oftentimes people may not themselves be the the person who's who's being remembered to have done bad things may not actually be convinced of it like uh um ingram came to be but enough other people around them believe that to be the case and then they're they're stuck with it you know um the social or institutional or family dynamic effectively makes them into a scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think even generally, like, uh, if you have got really strong interrogation and uh, techniques by the police, like, you can have this even without the whole, like, um, sexual crimes and satanic panic. Uh, yeah. you, you can get people to, if you interrogate them and, like, deprive them of sleep and whatnot will eventually, you know, if you run through these suggestible uh, scenarios well long enough, people might start to believe the things even though they might have never done them in the first place. Yeah. 
or they'll or they'll just say what what needs to be said in order to get out of the bad situation. You know, you you remember in Admiral Stockdale's um, mm-hmm. uh, discussion of what it was like in the Vietnamese prison camps, where I think he spent what five years or longer. Right. Um, he knew that the sorts of things that they could do would in fact produce compliance. They would they would break him as well as anybody else, and he he thought that it was actually. A, kind of a bad idea to try to turn yourself into like, you know, uh, some sort of super person who would not um, break at all. That was like a, a way of setting yourself up. But you could you could retain some sort of, you know, internal little kernel, where which was still you, even while you're doing what these other people were making you do. In cases like this, that, that kernel gets cracked open too, right? Right. Yeah, once once you let you know the walls in or the walls crumble, the you know, water rushes in. Yeah, don't want to drown yourself or your inner self. Um, so you know it's it's, it's interesting. I'm I'm going to bring up something like totally out of left field. Um, I've just been I just finished um, rereading and doing some presentations on this guy, R. Uh, R. Scott Backer's uh, trilogy, The Prince of Nothing series, each of which is around like, you know, four, 500 to 600 pages. It's a fantasy epic. And in it, there's sorcerers. And the sorcerers, now, now Backer's a really interesting guy because he was actually a philosophy PhD candidate who had developed this whole fantasy world out of, out of D&D, but he was actually studying at Vanderbilt and he was working on his dissertation when he finally like published his first novel in this series. And then after that, he, he just be, you know, like a lot of people never finished his dissertation, moved back home to Canada and continued writing it. And so in it, he's bringing to bear, he's using fantasy as sort of a vehicle. And he actually, he's very self-conscious about this. In interviews, he says, hey, why would I, if I am going to communicate cool stuff about philosophy and psychology, why wouldn't I use a genre that so many people will read? And so you've got characters in there who are engaging in some some serious metaphysical and moral and epistemological discourse. Mm-hmm. And there's sorcerers in it, so there's magic, right? And sorcery works according to certain rules, and mm-hmm. it's, it has to be sung, and there's all this other stuff that I'm not going to go into. But he talks in, in one section about cants of compulsion, and it's really the, the what he has to say is quite interesting. So it with a, you know a cant is a, a way of producing an effect, right? It's a, it's a technique. And then compulsion, we think of that as like I make you do something, right? Like I I hold the gun to your uh, you know spouse's head and say put down your gun, and if you don't do it, I'll kill her, right? You know it's the action movie kind of stuff. Or I I, I blackmail you, or I appeal to your uh, terrible desires, whatever it's going to be, right? I, I make you do something. Mm-hmm. And then Backer has one of his characters say that's not the way it works. The way that the compulsion works is to get you to actually endorse this as what it is that you want. So you 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 know might reveal information because part of you wants to reveal that information. Part of you is cool with that, and you don't realize that that part of you has been manipulated, has been has been touched, has been. You think it's your own self 
that's that's doing that. And I think that's that's kind of similar to what we can talk about when people have false memories, and it leads them to confess to horrible crimes or to remember you know grievances against people that never actually happened that way, or mm. pick pick whatever else you want. On some level, we can say in some cases we can say this person was definitely manipulated; they were brainwashed. Pick whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then in other cases, we can say, no, maybe there's something in them that wants that to be true, wants that to be the case, you know? Yes, definitely see that. It, it reminds me of, um, I don't know, kind of like this, uh, what, the old, there's that quote from LBJ, like you can, um, uh, if you convince the the lowest white man to believe that he's oh, above the, the highest black yeah, man, yeah. you don't have yeah, to yeah. Uh, steal from him. He'll empty your pockets for you. Just this idea that if you can convince yeah a group to um that um that they're always above this other class, um you can use that as a manipulating technique to get them to do what you want. And and as long as you can convince them that there's this fiction that they want to believe, yeah. um, that that which, has power. which which satisfies certain psychological needs, like thinking. I mean, if you if you are in a society where most people do look down upon you, you can use race, or you can use gender, or you can use immigrant status, or pick whatever else you want as the thing that you have. You know, being a being a Native American. To, mm -hmm. Interestingly, the first uses of the word Native American were by white supremacists. Um, who who wanted to you know like talk about those immigrants back? I think it was in the 1830s or so, um, mm. and how how terrible things were were getting uh, because of all of that. Uh, yeah, that that's actually that's a that's a great example. You you appeal to people's psychological needs, which they may not understand all that well, and you can get them to buy into progressively more and more radical ideas more and more comprehensive ideas as well right right so uh i don't know just to riff off your little thing uh, recently there was um as a popular piece of uh fiction there was uh wandavision one of marvel's new tv shows and i which, haven't watched it but, um, but you can you can do spoilers if you want because i'm probably uh, not it's it's I, i'll make it spoiler free it doesn't matter but in one of the latter episodes, two characters go into an extended conversation about the ship of Theseus okay. and, and what makes a thing a thing. And and they're discussing it between themselves in regards to themselves. And like, what bigger platform than like the Marvel Universe at this moment to present really kind of deep philosophical ideas that don't usually get a chance to be entered into our you know, zeitgeist? Well, you know, we should let, let's go off of that a little bit. We should explain what the ship of Theseus is for any listeners who right. don't already have some familiar familiarity with it. Right? It comes from uh, Plutarch originally, a Greek philosopher, and, and he's talking about um, this this ship that. Uh, apparently, it would it would go back and forth from Minos to Athens, right, carrying um, victims for the Minotaur. Mm. So yes. what makes it the ship of Theseus other than this guy Theseus being in charge of it? Why is it so important? So over time, each plank of the ship of Theseus is one by one replaced as it becomes worn out. And at some point in time, 
uh, the last plank, the last original plank of wood, is removed from the th ship of Theseus. Now, the question is, is that still the ship of Theseus? And then you can extend this further to say, if I took and saved all those previous planks that had worn out and right. reassembled a second ship of Theseus, which one is the real ship of Theseus? Is it the, the material component of it, or is it the continuity of it? Yeah. And, and if some of the things were replaced, but they're, they're somewhat different, like an oak board instead of a pine board or something like that, does that make a difference? Is it, is it not the same mm -hmm. ship? We can go off in all different directions. Now, do you think this, this ship of Theseus idea could apply to memory complexes? Uh, absolutely. If you if you okay, going into like I guess um, we'll go take Star Trek. Okay. And, and so they have uh, every once in a while there are transporter um, accidents where someone might be doubled, and so there's there's <laughs> one in the about next once every ten episodes, <laughs> right? So th there's you know, um, take I think there's a version of there's two versions of Commander Riker from the, the Next Generation timeline. Uh, there he was on a away mission. There's a transporter malfunction. He was disintegrated and then reintegrated on the enterprise but yeah. then he was also reintegrated back down to the planet they left and so now there's two different diverging rikers and so they both have the exact same memories up to that exact moment in time and so now which yeah. one is the real riker and so we have a, another kind of like identity question what makes the individual the individual Actually, quite a few philosophers did think that memory was, if not the one single thing that makes us what we are, they think it's pretty central, right? But, but the, then the whole discussion that we had about how fickle our memory is kind of is like, okay, this is the one thing that makes us who we are. But, <laughs> well, you know what that would mean is that the Riker above and the Riker below both have the same wrong memories right in a lot of cases right about how he just missed his chance with i don't know somebody on rigel 13 that he could have dated or whatever Riker was up to you know yeah um he's he's kind of a kirky guy right yes he's very kirky <laughs> um but but you know what about memory complexes themselves if if um our memories are complex and they're constructed and they're they're you know reproducing themselves in a way they're not just fixed static things like pictures in our head then parts of them could go in and be replaced by other bits of stuff right and yeah. maybe over time we we don't we don't have the same memories but we didn't notice the discontinuities and so they're yeah. they're real right yeah well they're the real to us yeah, they are they are a real memory, but that doesn't mean that it corresponds to reality. Yeah, quite, uh, quite true. So, uh, you know, talking about how do we like hold our ourselves to some sort of grounding? A lot of us will have like mementos of our past, either that a scrapbook or like a a souvenir from a vacation that like helps you jog your memory, as well as like, oh yeah, I definitely went to Hawaii. Here, I have this like little Hawaiian statue that I bought at the gift shop. Like that is, yeah. that is definitely a, a gift that, that, that makes my thing true. What? Photographs were a big way for people to do that in the past. And I, 
I made a big mistake myself in in my life where I'd see people taking photographs of all sorts of things and I'd be like, I don't need to take photographs. I've got my, my memories up in my head, mm-hmm. you know, so I'll remember this trip that I made or this person over here. And I have very few photographs from before I actually got my iPhone, mm-hmm. um, which was about 10 years ago, my, my first iPhone. Um, and started taking, I mean, because the phone I had before that I could take pictures, but they were just complete garbage. And actually, <laughs> you know, iPhone 3 was was pretty garbage too. But, um, you know, if you hold it really, really still, you could get a decent photo of something. And um, I kind of regret not having saved photos that other people took, thinking that, oh, I'll just remember it, or not taking a lot of photos myself. Because I look at what I have available in my stock of now thousands and thousands of things that I've taken on my phone. And they, they include things like, you know, um, concerts that we went to or um, this, this time with my kids or the pets that we have that are now gone. Um, and it's, uh, it's unfortunate not to have that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I think in the, you know, eighties, nineties, early two thousands, I just kind of figured I didn't, I didn't need that mm. while other people were taking a lot of photos. Right. Um, cause those are those kind of mementos that you're talking about, right? Right. They are. Um, but the, the question is, do those things actually represent reality themselves? And so, you know, you can have your photographs and you can. Uh, create them in such a way that you helps you remember, but they can also be deceptive because you are framing them in a certain way. Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, we have, you know, so we've since had since the what, early 1900s, different levels of, you know, Photoshopping things like look at the, the Soviet union oh, and true. Uh, yeah, constantly yeah. Fo- retouching photos <laughs> to like, well, he wasn't ever actually part of the party. And so just retouched him out of the thing and I'm um, kind of rewriting history. And so, you know, there's a, a a wealth of really good um, fiction about this, especially from Philip K. Dick, that uh, he's always about like, what is the nature of reality and how can we actually be yeah. prove that what we're experiencing is reality. That is a, a long through line of his, you know, tropes that he likes to talk about. Um, and, you know, there's even a, a whole thing for, you know, the, the book um, will remember it for you wholesale, which became the um, major motion picture, um, Total, Total recall. recall. Yeah. Um, and so they'll they'll give you memories of a uh, trip to like, you know, to Venus or Mars or whatever. And they'll actually give you physical accoutrements that will be like, oh, yes, well, I have this physical thing that proves I was there. I, I got this at this one restaurant or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the whole part of the narrative is that like these things aren't actually true things, that these are still creations. And then the it gets way off the rails i love the book i love the book even more than the movie because it's so much more yeah crazy than the book um high <laughs> high recommend well and and the irony is that um the guy who is the main character he he actually is like a like a super spy or something mm-hmm. like that right? right and he's got false memories that are keeping his true identity repressed until he goes in and they do remember it for him. But he, he doesn't actually, he doesn't need to have new memories implanted because he already does remember what it's like to be on Mars fighting guys, all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. He's, he's a, uh, 
a secret agent that has had his That's mind, right. mind yeah. overwritten. He goes to a place that will give him new memories. He chooses a memory that is very, very close to his actual <laughs> memories, which triggers his actual memories, uh, and thus, you know, craziness ensues. Yeah. Zaniness, right? Yes. <laughs> Wild antics. Uh, and and very, you know, uh, was it Arnold Schwarzenegger? He does a great job as, like, both a big muscle man and also just kind of, like, confused and... and <laughs> plays the, the straight man quite well in that regard yeah uh, well, so let's then, go to truth because oh, we're running a little late well did you want to talk quickly about uh one other dick thing which is the the replicants and oh sure blade runner and you know. so you know blade runner always uh, from the you know the first one um and the um oh I, i'll not go into the book um the first one with um, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, as well as the the new one with uh, was Ryan Gosling as Officer K. Um, they're both. Um, yeah. Well, I guess the question of the first one is still up in the air. If if Deckard is actually a replicant, is he a replicant? Yeah. Um, but the second yeah. one, you know, it is played off as uh, Officer K being a replicant, but then he starts to have memories of things of a childhood, and so he starts to think that he might not be a replicant, and so. Um, he has these choils, uh, sorry, these memories of being a child that had a toy horse and he hid it in a fireplace, um, uh, to hide it from some bullies that wanted to take it from him. And so he's, he's out on his, um, detective work and he finds the fireplace and he finds this horse from his childhood and he believes that he may be in part human because how the heck could he have these memories, even though he knows that there can be false memories, but there is a physical object that actually corresponds with his memories. And it's like, oh. Which verifies things for him. Right. And so now he's going off this idea that he is at least partially human. Um, the, The fact that the physical world agrees with his memory convinces him that he is human and not just a replicant. But in the end, this is a ruse. The memory is another's, and he found her horse, believing it was his. That's, yeah, what a kick in the pants. I mean, right. we think our memories are so so much us, so, so intimate to us. What if we did find out that, like, the trip that I, you know, like, I took a trip with my dad to Eagle River when I was 10, you know, for fishing and all that. What if that really was some other kid's memory that was given to me because it was you know it was a really great time and you know it'd be instead of an evil evil genius inventor it'd be like a benign one he'd be like yeah that sadler kid could need a little pick-me-up let's give him the the dad fishing trip memory (laughs) to find that out would really be um a shock Mm -hmm. you know that it's not me and not not uh, my stuff. Even though I'm I'm so distant from that little kid who is ten years old. I'm forty years. That's forty years ago. You know. Right. And and it would be like, once that happens to you, how can you trust anything that you believe in anymore? I, yeah, that's a good question. Now, would it provoke like an overall global skepticism? I don't know that it would for everybody. I think it would for some people. They'd be like, well, if I can't trust this, I can't trust anything else. Um, and I can't trust anybody to give me the, the straight story on this. But I think a lot of people will be like, oh, that's an aberration. You know, I'll, I'll just put that one over on the side. All my other stuff is okay until it gets proven maybe three or four times that the things that they thought were, were veridical no longer are. Right. Do you think uh, that would be, uh, um, 
I mean, might there be some people who just never believe? Oh yeah, I believe. Like I think there's people like that at the moment. Like they, they, they totally think that you know this is not like the reality that we're living in, and everything is being like presented to them. I don't know if they're like neurotypical or anything along those lines, but yeah. Well, so you wanted to talk about truth, and we might have to do a whole other episode to get into some of the theories of truth. Um, yeah. I, to, oh, go ahead. Well, I was, I was thinking, like, we we do we were motivated. So I'm mean, just going back to this a little bit about like, what, why do we do the things? And we we talked about this um, a bit with the across the episode and this whole idea that people do what they believe to be is the good. But if we don't mm-hmm. have a good memory about the things. Uh, we can le- be led to bad decisions, and so the our idea of the good is based off of memory that is falsifiable and and potentially uh, manipulated to a certain extent. And yeah. so, how can you know what the good is? This often happens with generalizing too much from one one memory, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you sort of a trivial example. Um, you go to a restaurant and you order a dish that you haven't had before and it comes out and it's just, just like amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And you have no idea that they just happen to have the good chef on that night and it was served at just the right time and temperature and everything else was going for you that evening. You're with somebody that you like. And so you're like, oh, man, that was so amazing. I'm going in and having that next week. Mm-hmm. And you do. And you get it and it's it's, yeah, it's not so good. You know, it's it's not terrible, but it's not, it's not what you remember and you're like, did I get that wrong? Mm. I think that was really tasty, but here's the thing in front of me, and it's just not so hot. And you could do this so easily. With, you know, people say, oh, first impressions are so important. Mm-hmm. Maybe first impressions shouldn't be that important <laughs> right? because we often we generalize about people on the basis of first impressions. I know I've done this many, many times where I'm like, well, that person's a jerk, mm. you know, and it just turns out they were just having a bad day and distracted, you know, or I'm like, well, that person's cool. And it turns out that they're a jerk, you know. <laughs> yeah, one should never make total conclusions off of one data point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the better way to think about it in terms of data points, right? Um, as soon as you frame it like that, that calls for having more of them, mm-hmm. and it, it prioritizes putting together like a a composite picture rather than just going off of a sample of one. You know. Yeah. I guess it, it depends on like what you have to do. Uh, I guess like if you're like hiring someone and you're like, how, how do you, oh, yeah, how do you yeah. get enough data points from uh, a group of people to even decide to like move them on to the next round? Like, obviously that's, the that's an for- interesting one too, because when you have like a, a committee, to do hiring, right? And you, you like they, somebody comes in, gives a presentation. They do their song and dance. They, they leave, and then like we say, okay, we're all going to like reconvene tomorrow and talk about this person, this candidate. And sometimes you're like, did we all see the same person? Mm. You know, memories of who they were change quite a bit. Like some people think that the person was taller than they, they were. Or, you know, other people are like, oh, their presentation was amazing, and you're like, I don't remember that. You know. Yeah. Uh, hey, at least for like you, people have thousands of hours they can watch. It's like, is he a good teacher or not? But how how much work are you going to put into like I'm going to watch a, a representative sample of Greg Sandler's lectures and make sure that I have a really fully understood you know, idea. 
That is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll just say this, and then we should do our practice because we're, we're yeah. getting close on time. So there are more hours now of people watching me than I have lived, like, you know, way, way more at this point in time. The last time that I looked, there were like 100, uh, 102,000 hours or no, whatever it is, it's, it's longer than it's like years and years and years, like a hundred years of, of, of that guy on the YouTube videos, but he only does a, a very limited repertoire of stuff. He gets up in front of a chalkboard every once in a while, he like sits in a chair in front of uh, books. He talks about some very limited topics, right? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, there'll be a video about my, my cat or things like that. But for the most part, it's all like explaining philosophy and I've often thought, so I'm just going to throw this idea out there and see what you, what you think of this, that if, if somebody wanted to, you, you know, put together like deep fake and uh, AI stuff, they could so easily mine my YouTube channel, take um, all that, that, that data, the visual data, all the semantic data, let's call it, and just glom it together and have some character that they could call Dr. Gregory B. Sadler um, just going on and on and on about philosophy. And it probably wouldn't be great. You know, it wouldn't have the spontaneity that I have. And it might actually get some stuff wrong because, um, you know, AIs are good when it comes to certain things. I think when it comes to philosophy and philosophical discourse, they're, we're decades away from that. Yeah. But you could you could do something like that. And it could be, and maybe he'd be like a philosophical comedian or something like that, you know, right? Um, and, and I'm surprised nobody's actually done it yet. Yeah. Because that guy would would he wouldn't he could make money for them right? Mm-hmm. Um, they could charge for his classes and stuff like that and not pay me a cent. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly, they they did actually make a uh, animatronic version of Philip K. Dick based on his writings and all of his um, <laughs> uh, diaries. Wow. And so you can ask him questions and he would respond as Philip K. Dick in those responses. Oh, that's, very interesting. That- that's really interesting because he has a a novel in which there's an entire school like that, the Martian time slip, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and actually, speaking of, of Philip K. Dick, I don't think we're going to actually get to our, our practice because okay. we're we're running a bit short on time. But you know, he's when it comes to memory, uh, like Dan was saying, he's, he's definitely his stories. He more maybe than any other sci-fi author has thematized all sorts of interesting aspects about memory. Maze of Death would be another great novel to check out uh, in that respect as well. But there was a great concept that that Dan was going to take you out on. Um, So I'm going to just turn it over to you and uh, let you riff with it. We leave you here today with the words of Philip K. Dick. Reality is that which, when you stop leaving it, It doesn't go away.